Well, this is exciting stuff today. We're in Matthew 27, look at verses 27 through 50, and we're going to look at the king's suffering and death. And just to remind you of the context, we've already seen that the passion narrative here in the Bible is moving to its inevitable conclusion. Of course, Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is king. He's, he's the Messiah. And the Messiah must die. That is his, his mission. He's come. And, and, and Matthew said this right from the very beginning, didn't he? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. That he came to save his people from their sins. And it, it's coming to this conclusion. It, he's already been condemned by the Jewish leadership. We saw last week he was condemned by the Roman leadership. And so all that remains now is just to, to carry out the sentence. Of course, we've already seen that Jesus is perfect, he's innocent, he's not going to the cross because he's a criminal. He's going because he is perfect, and he has a mission to accomplish. And so in this passage, we're going to see Jesus is going to be mocked. He's going to be rejected by several different groups, including Roman soldiers, the whole crowd, the, the leaders, and uh, even the criminals <laughs> will reject Jesus. Although one does come to Christ, doesn't he? So Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to give his life. And he is giving up his life. Let's be clear on that. You cannot kill God. He is willingly giving his life, and he's giving it as a sacrifice, because he is the Lamb of God. And so the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is this climax of redemptive history. Uh, You you can read about it even in the Old Testament. We should have known this was coming. The Jews should have known it was coming. Everyone should have known. And so the focal point of God's plan of salvation is, is coming into to picture here. So God's redeeming work culminated on the cross. It's why we're to glory in the cross of Christ. It's where the Lord Jesus bore sin. But also in the crucifixion of Christ, we also see the wickedness of mankind reaching its peak. In fact, some have even called this the greatest sin. The, the you know, killing. The killing of the perfect Savior. The execution of the Savior was uh, the vilest expression of evil in human history. It's just the utter depth of man's depravity. It shows how, just how much we are corrupted by our sin. So, here's my main idea as, as we look at the text today. All right, It's on the screen here for you. Here's the main idea. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ was the supreme revelation of the gracious love of God while also being the ultimate expression of the sinfulness of man. So we're going to see both of these in our text. So we see God's love, but we see why we need a Savior. I mean, it just clearly shows us the depravity of man, just how corrupted by sin we are. So let's, let's just work our way through the text here. Matthew 27, verse, uh, starting in verse 27, we see the, the, the mockery of the Roman soldiers. Remember, Pilate's already handed Jesus over for his execution. And so the Roman soldiers begin uh, here in, in verse 26 by scourging Jesus. Look at Matthew 27. Let's uh, that's, that's read, starting in verse 26. It says... Uh, Then he, that's Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 26, it says they scourged him. This doesn't happen in our society. (laughs) That's a good thing. Scourging was a terrible punishment. You, You need to understand that Matthew's holding nothing back from the ugliness of mankind's depravity here. Jesus was probably uh, received uh, uh, the most severe kind of beating, by the way. There was, there was different levels of beatings. You have to understand that. And he probably received the worst. He was uh, beaten with a whip that would have been made from strips of leather. And at the end of those strips of leather, they would have put pieces of bone or uh, pieces of metal. And so uh, it was said that only after a few strokes from the cat of nine tails, this, 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 this whip, that a person's back would have just been torn a- a- apart. It would have become mincemeat. Uh, a hard blow, it was said, could tear out a person's inter- internal organs. It was a horrible thing. And so these, these Roman soldiers would have been well trained in this. They knew exactly what they were doing. They, they were controlling those strokes enough. The idea was we, we don't want to kill the guy. Uh, we want to keep him alive enough so that he could endure his suffering on the cross. And so the soldiers could have killed Jesus, and, and some did die from the scourging. You have to understand that. Uh, one commentator said it this way. There's a quote on the screen here for you. That the, that the whip used for scourging had a short wooden handle, to the end of which were attached several leather thongs. Each thong was tipped with very sharp pieces of metal or bone. The man to be scourged was tied to a post by the wrist high over his head with his feet dangling and his body taut. Often there were two soldiers, one on either side of the victim, who took turns lashing him across the back. Muscles were lacerated, veins and uh, arteries were torn apart, and it was not uncommon for the kidneys, the spleen, or other organs to be exposed and slashed. As would be expected, many men died of scourging before they could be taken out for execution. End quote. So Jesus endured that. I'll remind you, he didn't didn't deserve that. He was perfect. He was innocent, sinless. And he knew that he was going to endure this. It was prescribed, if you will. It was uh, predicted in the Old Testament. We also see Jesus was stripped which was a humiliating thing to do to anyone. Uh, and by the way, Pilate, Pilate's soldiers were under his orders to scourge and crucify Jesus. Pilate never ordered them to do this. Uh, they're just exhibiting their own wickedness here, their own sinfulness, their own depravity, uh, which was you know, just far exceeding the basic duty required of them. And so they, the Bible says here that, that they take Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And so they just decided to make public sport of Jesus. Uh, they didn't like Jesus. And so the Bible says here that this whole Roman battalion is just gathering around Jesus. They're making sport of him, making fun of him, mocking him. And by the way, a battalion 
was uh, normally somewhere around 600 soldiers. Verse 28 in your Bible says that the soldiers stripped Jesus. So just picture this. Jesus has been beaten. They've put clothes back on him. And now he goes in and they strip that off him. So Jesus must have had his robe placed back on him after the beating. It says that he was stripped. And of course that would have hurt. Of course it would have opened up the wounds again that had probably started bonding to the clothing. It's a horrible thing. We, we also see that, that that wasn't enough. It just gets, it, it's, the, the, it's compounding here, isn't it? We see that Jesus received a crown of thorns and a reed in verse 29. And, and again, it's just all to make fun of Jesus, to mock him, to ridicule him. Uh, the mock crown had long thorns to inflict pain. Uh, some have said those things could have been maybe up to six, maybe even seven centimeters long. The reed imitated, of course, a royal scepter. They're not giving him a, a real thing. They're, they're making fun of him. So both the crown and the reed were just uh, intended to mock Jesus' status as king of the Jews. Which is really ironic when you think about it, because Jesus was king of the Jews. He was the ruler of the world. He's the creator of the world. They didn't see that, though. Then we see in verse 29, the end of verse 29, that Jesus was hailed as king of the Jews. So he's got the royal robe, he's got the crown, he's got the staff, he's got the fake worship, the mock worship, all going on, just combining a very very comical picture. What the soldiers saw was, uh, in their opinion, was just a half-dead Jew who claimed to be their king, who claimed to be their Messiah, but the king... The real king, Jesus Christ, what is he doing here? He's, he's standing fast in the midst of the horrible situation. He's refusing to exercise his power. He could have slain them. He could have escaped. But he didn't want to because he had a mission to accomplish. Next we see that Jesus was spit on and, and hit on the head in verse 30. If you look at your Bible, it says that uh, that they spit on him, they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. Just, just being cruel. It's pure cruelty. This was their way of saying, kind of like, uh, hey, uh, you know, you're a joke. You, you think you're a king? You're not a king. You're a joke. Just look how easily we can strip you of your dignity, your authority, and your majesty. And so they're just making fun of him. It's like they were asking him, hey, dude, where's your power? You can't do anything to us. Interestingly enough, uh, the Apostle John said that they, they actually struck Jesus with their fist. <laughs> so, horrible situation. We haven't even got to Jesus' crucifixion yet, and we see that starting in verse 32, the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's read it together. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. 
And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. For you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priest, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So Jesus is crucified. But notice uh, the interesting little tidbits that uh, the Apostle Matthew puts in the story here. First of all, we see this man who is from North Africa is forced to carry Jesus' cross. One of the things this shows us is that Jesus has lost so much blood at this point that he, is, he just has become so weak, he can't even carry the crossbeam. By the way, he's not carrying the whole thing like you, you've probably seen in some art and photos and pictures. Normally, a, a prisoner just carried that crossbeam. Not the long piece that went up, up and down, but the, the, the cross piece, where uh, that piece would have been connected to the other piece. And so Jesus is weak, which... One of the things this shows us is his humanity. We see his, his humanity side here, his human nature. He is, after all, the God-man. He is God and man in one person forever. It, so what do they do? Jesus can't carry it. He's collapsed. So they draft a civilian to do the work for Jesus. And next we see that Jesus was taken to Golgotha to be executed in verse 33. It says that when they came to, to this place called Gotha, they, they offered him the wine to drink mixed with gall. But Jesus wouldn't drink it. And why are they taking him there? Well, because the Mosaic law required that executions were to be performed outside the city. You can read it in Numbers 15. And also because the Jews believed that hanging on a tree was considered a curse. You can read that in Galatians 3. Then Jesus was taken outside Jerusalem to be executed. Because crucifixion was a means of showing the locals the price for opposing Rome, crosses were generally erected near city gates, outside the city gate, often including they were, they were, if, if there was a hill, they would try to put it on a hill. And so that's exactly where they picked to do the execution. So it's on a hill, most likely, outside the city gate. They wanted as many people to see Jesus and those other criminals being crucified as they possibly could. And so the place chosen for Jesus' crucifixion was a hill on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now you have to keep in mind, Jerusalem has grown. And Jerusalem is not the same now as it was in Jesus' day. There's a little bit of a, a barrier there you need to understand. And so uh, there's a little debate on where exactly was that. Well, you'll see in that picture on the screen there that um, most scholars are convinced that the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there is the better option. 
although there are other options. Uh, by the way, Golgotha is the Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word means skull. So there is a little debate on that as well. Is it, is it called Golgotha because the place looked like a skull, or is it called that because that's just the place the Romans used for their executions? Not exactly sure myself, right? doesn't really matter, as long as you know this is where Jesus was executed. The main thing we know that is, it was on this main highway coming into Jerusalem. Remember, it is time of Passover. It's, it's Passion Week. So there's thousands and thousands, tens and tens of thousands of pilgrims who come from all over, even maybe as far as way up in Galilee where Jesus had, had been teaching. And so here he is. He's hanging on the cross where lots of people can see him. <clears throat> He was offered drink, verse 34, but Jesus refused the drink. In verse 34, it was, it was called uh, uh, wine. He's given this wine to drink, and, and with that it was mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So before the, the soldiers uh, nailed Jesus to the cross, it was common to give uh, the grape juice to drink. They would often mingle it with gall. The word gall, by the way, just simply refers to uh, something that's bitter. It, uh, Mark actually identifies it as myrrh. Myrrh, by the way, was a narcotic. And that narcotic was, was given to these guys because the Roman soldiers who were nailing people to the crosses didn't want them squirming. They, they want those guys to kind of be a little bit relaxed so they can get the job done. They don't want to make it any more difficult on themselves than it already is. So that's why they typically did that. So gall simply was used to subdue the victim, to keep him from struggling. And so Jesus' refusal here is noted, uh, well, you have to wonder why. <laughs> I think it gives just further evidence to the voluntary nature of Jesus' death. I think that's one of the reasons why Matthew's put it here. It shows Jesus has volunteered for this mission. He doesn't have to do this. He's willingly doing it. So clearly Jesus chose to face his death. And, and he's doing this fully conscious of what's going on. He's in full control. He's not subjected to some narcotic or drug. Well, the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to a cross. And then we see in verses 35 and 36 that, as if that's not bad enough, they're, they're sitting there at the foot of the cross Dividing Jesus' garments. Deciding, well, who's going to get the, the few possessions that Jesus has. And so the phrase in your Bible, which says, when they had crucified him, it doesn't refer to the finished execution. It, it talks about raising him upright, placing the vertical beam into a hole. And so they, they would typically have the guy laying down, nail him to the cross, uh, nail him to the wood, and then they'd lift him up, dropping the person into a hole. And so it was at that point that the actual crucifixion began. So according to non-biblical descriptions of crucifixion, Jesus was placed on the cross as it was laying flat on the ground. And first uh, his feet were nailed, then his arms were, would have been stretched out and nailed to the cross as well. Then they dropped it into the hole which, of course, would have been excruciatingly painful. 
Now, why did the soldiers divide Jesus' garments? Well, you have to understand, legally, legally, they're not doing anything illegally. Or legally, the, 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 the prisoner's goods, what, what little belonged to Jesus and those other criminals, would have been given to the soldiers doing the dastardly deed. And so the, uh, it was typical of Jewish men in Jesus' day that they would have had five garments. They had several different layers of garments. And so uh, they would have been dividing those uh, amongst themselves. And so they're, they're casting lots, the Bible says, to determine who is getting what. So having done that, then they, they, the Bible says they sat down at the foot of the cross. They were keeping watch. They had a duty still to perform. Even though Jesus and those other two guys next to Jesus are nailed on the cross, they can't get off, at least not on their own. Uh, they still had a duty per, to perform. And so until these guys were dead, their job is to sit there and to make sure they don't get help, to make sure nobody comes and, and helps them off the cross, to make sure that they die. That's their duty. And interestingly enough, Matthew tells us in verse 37, there was this inscription placed on the cross. Notice the inscription. This is interesting because this charge is put up up on the cross with Jesus, which says this. This is all they can say about Jesus. Look at it. Verse 37. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. (laughs) That's it. Which again shows he's not guilty. He's innocent. He's perfect. That's that's the best they can do. (laughs) It doesn't say, here's Jesus, a murderer and an insurrectionist against Rome. No, it doesn't say that. It just says Jesus, the King of the Jews. He's totally innocent. And so all Pilate can say is that. So Jesus is killed for claiming to be the Messiah, which of course he was. It's exactly what he was. He was rejected as king, and it shows his rejection by both the Jews as well as the Romans and the Gentiles. Which again is quite ironic because... Jesus lives today as the only true ruler of all people. Well, the other interesting, uh, there's a lot of interesting things here, isn't there? But in verse 38, it says there's two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. Look at verse 38. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. That word robber in your text means a thief who plunders as he steals. So this is not just a a guy who is a petty thief. He's not just a common robber. This uh, apparently was a cruel uh, group of bandits who may have actually taken pleasure in tormenting people, abusing people, and maybe most likely even killing people. And by the way, Barabbas was most likely a part of that group. In fact... uh, it would, some have even given the idea that maybe the, the cross in the middle was meant for Barabbas. And so all three of these guys were in the same group. Of course, Barabbas is left free, and so Jesus is put on Barabbas' cross. These guys were probably insurrectionists. You, you might call them guerrilla soldiers. They're, they're out uh, murdering, stealing, abusing, being incredibly violent Not just to the Romans, but most likely also to the Israelites. 
So they deserved to die. Jesus did not. Then we see the mockery by the Jews. As if the mockery by the Romans wasn't enough, the mockery continues from the Jews. Starting in verse 39, we see that the crowds mocked Jesus. Total mockery. They're deriding him, wagging their heads, verse 39 says. Uh, The crowd, by the way, probably composed of largely Jewish pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the the festivities there for Passover week. Uh, And so because Jerusalem couldn't possibly house all of these pilgrims, all of these visitors, uh, what would have happened is they would have spread out around the area around Jerusalem and would have been coming in and out of Jerusalem uh, regularly every day of the week. And so Jerusalem uh, was just a hive of activity. Think of a beehive, right? Think of a beehive, right, with, with a couple entrances coming in and out of the beehives. Bees just come, you know, on a nice sunny day, they're coming and going just by the thousands, right? Well, that's kind of like what Jerusalem would have been like. So there would have been much heavier traffic in and out of Jerusalem than normal. And so this particular crowd of, of pilgrims uh, almost certainly included people from Judea, uh, maybe even Samaria, and certainly from Galilee. Possibly some of these people would have been former admirers of Jesus. Some who had maybe even heard Jesus preaching, like like the Sermon on the Mount, or uh, the Olivet Discourse, or others. Some of them may have even been healed by Jesus. And by the way, did you notice what they're doing? Again, notice this. The Bible says they're blaspheming, they're slandering Jesus. They're shaking their heads, wagging their heads. Uh, you may not do this, but you've probably seen other people do this, right? You ever seen people wag their heads when they see someone do something stupid, right? You ever done that? You ever seen somebody? They do something really stupid, like planking, for example. You know, and then they just, oh, man, what an idiot. What, what is that guy thinking? Where's his brain? Well, that, well, they're making fun. That's an oriental gesture of contempt. So that's exactly what they're doing. The crowds mocked Jesus. And the leaders mocked Jesus in verse 41. We, we see the chief priest here, the scribes, the elders, mocking him. They're all there, major groups that would have constituted the, the uh, Jewish religious high council of the day, which we call the Sanhedrin. They're there. They're abusing Jesus. They're certainly not being righteous, godly, Christ-like. And Jesus was... Not their kind of Messiah. And that's exactly why they're doing this. They didn't want this Messiah. They wanted another one. They had no desire to follow Jesus in the way that he demanded. And when you don't want someone the way you you want him to be, you've got to get rid of him. And that's exactly what they did. At least what they thought they did. They didn't want to be made righteous. They wanted to be successful. They didn't want to be cleansed of their sin. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to just be selfish. They didn't want to give up anything for God. They wanted Him only to meet their material needs. Just like many people today, right? With the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We don't want the Jesus of the Bible. We want a Jesus who's going to give us health, wealth, and prosperity, and good health. So they realized Jesus wasn't going to offer them what they wanted. He wasn't going to give them any of those kind of favors. And so they removed him. 
As if that wasn't bad enough, we got the crowds mocking Jesus, we got the leaders of Israel mocking Jesus, now we got the thieves mocking Jesus. Look at verse 44. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Seems like everyone's against Jesus here, right? Luke, by the way, actually kind of elaborates and expands on the scene here. Here's what he says in Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's what Luke says. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. By the way, that guy had no time to get baptized, did he, before he died? So baptism does not save. And that's a clear example of how good works don't save you. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. Because he died before he had any chance of any good works. Next, let's look at the death of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 45, the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. First we see that God the Father sends darkness over the land for a a total of three hours. That's what verse 45 is telling us. Uh, If you understand uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that was three hours, okay? So it would have been from, uh, well, a Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And so this means we got total darkness then coming from noon to 3 p.m., so, so when the, the sun is supposed to be at its height, the time when it should have been the brightest, the land is dark. Uh, the darkness could have been a natural phenomenon. Some have described it that way. But more likely, it's a supernatural event that God the Father is bringing here. Now, why did God send the darkness? You ever wondered? Why? Well, in the Bible, you have to understand, darkness is usually associated with divine judgment. Uh, we see that a number of times, even going way back into the Old Testament. But, it, but in this case, judgment is vicariously on Jesus. Think of the word vicarious. He's our substitute. He's, he's taking our place. And so it's vicariously on Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sin. And so God the Father is sending this darkness for this three hours, blocking things out. People can't see. 
We see in verse 46, Jesus' soul is in utter agony. He's in utter agony here. This is not easy for him in his humanity, nor in his divinity. Because he's, he's crying out here in, in English, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's amazing when you think about it that here's Jesus crying out in anguish. Why, why is he doing this? He's the God-man. Well, you have to understand that the, the separation he's experiencing from his heavenly Father at this time. It, you, please understand, this is the first time in all of eternity, and will be the only time in all of eternity, that this has ever happened. The only time in all eternity. Why? Because the Son has taken this sin upon himself, and the Father is... is he doesn't have a back, but let's use him human imagery here. It's like he's turning his back on his son, which would have been rejection. Because God the Father is holy. He's totally separate and unique, distinct from his creation, certainly from sin. And so, so he can't bear that. So Jesus, is, it's like he's left alone to, to take that in the darkness. Now please understand, when Christ was forsaken by the Father, there separation was not a separation of nature. Uh, it, the, their essence was the same. But, but Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God. He's still a member of the Trinity, of the Godhead. He, okay, It's not like they cut off a part of the Trinity here. That's certainly not what's going on. He didn't cease to be God the Son. But there was this sense that just for a while, He's... he's um, He's lacking this intimate communion and fellowship with his Father and, and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a disobedient child. Any of you have disobedient children? You don't need to raise your hand. I know the answer. It's, it's like a disobedient child who, who is disobeying you. And, and when disobedient children disobey, it, it hinders that relationship and fellowship between a parent and a child. Does the child cease to be uh, a son or a daughter? No, of course not. You're, you're still a son and a daughter of your parents, even though you've sinned. But that fellowship, the intimate fellowship is broken. And so there must be a confession of sin then. So it's kind of think of it that way. Uh, although Jesus is sinless. He's totally sinless, totally innocent. And he's bearing this sin. And so this intimate fellowship with his father is, is hindered at this moment. And then we, in, in verse 47, we got a bystander who misunderstands Jesus. You remember Jesus, his soul is in utter agony. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and when you look at verse 47, this, whoever this bystander is, Matthew just calls him a bystander. And he hears it, and he, he says, this man's calling for Elijah. If you remember your Old Testament, Elijah was a prophet of God. So he thinks that's who he's, he's crying out to, to Elijah for help. And so he goes and he gets this drink to help, help quench Jesus' thirst. Offering the drink to Jesus, by the way, would have, con, would have been considered an act of mercy. But of course that would have just been uh, a little effect, not much would have just served to only prolong the, tur the, the torture before death would have actually relieved that 
torture. But the rest of those standing near the cross actually use that particular gesture of kindness as just another opportunity to mock Jesus. (laughs) They're relentless. They're cruel. And notice the text, at least this portion of the text, ends by saying that Jesus yielded up his spirit. The word yielded, gave, uh, in some translations, it says gave or, or yielded, has the idea he sent it away. He let his spirit go. You might ask the question, okay, he yielded, he gave, he sent his spirit away, but to who? Well, apparently Jesus gave his spirit to his Father. Apparently. And the point is this, that Jesus proved sovereign here, even over the timing of his death. You can't kill God. He wasn't killed. Jesus was not murdered, in in that sense anyway. But we see him willingly giving his life in obedience to his Father's will. And so this loud cry here was just a a cry of... uh, of acclamation. It was, a, it was a cry of triumphant completion. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus says, it is finished. The mission was accomplished. Well, let's think of what the true significance of Jesus' death is here for just a couple moments. What is the true significance of Jesus' death? <clears throat> well, we're, we need to think of the three groups. And, and that'll help to kind of guide our thoughts. The three groups, what are they? Let's remind ourselves. We've got the people, we've got the leaders, and we've got the soldiers. And, and we learn from, uh, about them from what, what the Scripture says. Okay, so let's think about them. Number one, Jesus is King of Israel. Jesus is King of Israel. We've got this mockery from, from all of Jesus' enemies here. And it's providing the true significance of Jesus' death. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is king of Israel. We see that in verse 42, don't we? Because it says that he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Now, they're mocking him, but what they're saying is is for real. It's truth. He's the royal Messiah who will conquer. Not at this point, though. He's come in humility but but this is this is victory over our greatest problem. And so when the soldiers mockingly dressed Jesus as king, it's ironic. They had actually no idea that one day they would be forced. They will be forced one day to bow before King Jesus. Philippians two says so. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is king of Israel. Number two, Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 40. Because in verse 40, they're saying here, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, which he is, come down from the cross. Now look at verse 43. It says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. So, we see the God-man. We see the two natures of Jesus Christ. He's both God and man, and with these two natures combined in this one person forever. So he's the king of Israel. He's the son of God. But this story is also telling us that Jesus is the only viable object of faith. The only genuine, real object of trust and belief. Look at verse 42. Again, it says that he saved others. 
He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Which, of course, they did not believe in him. Well, most of them didn't anyway. And so this truth here is seen in the leader's cry. And as we know, Jesus really did not come, or sorry, Jesus really did come down, but he came down in a way, different way, in a way they could not foresee. And so the reader here is challenged to believe. By the way, this is awesome because the core of the gospel is found here, is it not? The gospel is seen in Jesus who is the sacrifice. He's dealing with our greatest problem, which is sin. By the way, sin is transgression of God's law. And so that that sin demands belief. The sin demands faith. Sin demands belief. And what what do you believe in? Well, the object of your faith is crucial here. And so, my friend, you must believe that Jesus is, number one, the Son of God. He is is God, and He is also a man. He is the God-man who went to the cross to bear your sin, to bear your penalty, which is death. And so, again, I remind you of this main idea from the text that is this, that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ was a supreme revelation of the gracious love of God, At the same time, it's also showing us the ultimate expression of the sinfulness of mankind. Man is deserving of death, eternal death, because we're all sinners. None of us are righteous. No, not one. But Jesus Christ shows his love. God the Father shows his love because he gave us the greatest gift there is in his Son. So what should be your response? Number one. The cross commands your continual meditation. Do, do you see that word, a key word there, continual? My friends, continually meditate on the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus Christ crucified. Let me put it to you another way that I've heard other people say, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Daily preach the gospel to yourself. And the gospel, of course, would include the person and work of Jesus Christ, his, that Jesus came to save people from their sins. He died, was buried, and rose again. That, my friends, is what you must continually meditate upon. And, and I know from experience, by the way, that when I meditate, continually meditate on the right content, it protects me from a noisy soul. Uh, It is so easy to slip into noisy soul mode where I am meditating on wrong content. I think on what-ifs. I think of bad stuff happening in my life or in your life. How often God uses His Word, Christian music, or a good Christian book, or a brother or sister in Christ to remind me of the gospel. Remind me of the, the finished and continuing work of Christ. We need it. You cannot live without it. Number two, the cross demands your all. 100%. So Jesus' death should cause you to feel an obligation to live for him. And that's why we've already sung that today. In that that song, hey, I'm clinging to Christ. He's my all. What else should you do? What? You have an obligation to live for Him because He has ransomed you. He has purchased you with His blood. 
So the cross demands your all, holding nothing back. You, you are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6 says, because you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your soul, which are God's. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. All of you, body, soul, spirit, mind, flesh, you name it. Your whole entire being is God's. So that means all your time, your money, your efforts, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your, your, your everything is God's. It's not yours. You must live for Him. He is worthy. And may God help us to know who Jesus is, to believe who Jesus is, that we would live for Jesus.